Titus chapter 2. Today I want to look at salvation, past, present, and future. Beginning in verse 11, reading through verse 14, Paul writes to Titus and he says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I ask that you pray for me as I stand before you this morning. In verse 11, we see salvation past. Notice that he says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath, past tense, appeared to all men. It hath appeared. Salvation past. And I want to ask you this question this morning. What is it that brings salvation? Well, here it says it's the grace of God. Do y'all see that? It's the grace of God that brings salvation. And I'll ask you this question. What is the grace of God? Nobody's answering me this morning. <laughs> um, I understand that, that it's kind of a rhetorical question, but the grace of God is the, is the unmerited love and favor of God, right? That is what the grace of God means. It's, it's, it's unmerited. That's what grace is. I wrote down the definition for unmerited recently and and simple but listen it says it's not merited <laughs> that's pretty simple isn't it it goes on to say not deserved obtained without service or equivalent an unmerited promotion that's from Webster's dictionary and so when you ask what brings salvation it is the grace of God and the grace of God is unmerited that means that salvation is unmerited by the recipient of salvation. There's nothing that they did. There's nothing in them. There was nothing outside of them. There was nothing, um, no response on their behalf or no good work that they could do that would merit salvation with God, but it is a gift from God. There's, there's never been a person who, who was saved or will be saved that was ever saved from their sins based upon something they did. The grace of God is what always brings salvation to men. Um, if anyone has been saved or ever will be saved, it will be through the grace of God. And if you understand man's condition, you know it's important to understand some of the, the, the basic foundational doctrines of Christianity. And if you can get that one down, man's condition and his depravity, his corruptness from the fall of Adam and, and, and being passed down from all generations, you would have to admit that just without understanding uh, you know, predestination and election and sanctification and redemption and the effectual call and all those things, without understanding any of that, if you can understand man's condition by nature, you would have to say if there's anyone saved, it has to be by grace because there's no way that man could save themselves. And so Paul says here to Titus, the grace of God is what brings salvation. 
you know, I, I wrote a few verses down. I won't quote them all, but from Ephesians 2 and verse 8 and 9, you know, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, he says, not of something you do, lest any man should boast. See, boasting is excluded from salvation. There's nothing we can brag about what we did or, or how we achieved it. It's, it's given to us in such a way that we cannot boast. Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, it's not according to our works. He would say here in the, the fifth verse of chapter 3 in Titus, it's not by our works. Um, you know, he, he would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses, I believe it's 30, 31, that, that, that of him are you in Christ Jesus. It is that God placed us in Christ Jesus of his own will. Regardless of our merit, he was, he, was going to, he was going to put us there based on his merit, right? And so Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 1, If any man's going to glory, let him glory in the Lord. Why is that? Because salvation is by grace. Do you all understand that today? You can answer that one. Does everybody here believe salvation is by grace? <laughs> but you know, that's one of the reasons that we come to worship God is because he's been gracious to us. And so Paul says that the grace of God is what brings salvation. But notice here he says that that salvation hath appeared to all men. And, and so as we look at salvation's appearance to all men, first of all, what, what is the audience that he's talking about there? Well, we know from Scripture that all men without exception will not be saved. When Christ comes back, he will separate the sheep from the goats. We, we read about that. He, him, he himself teaches that in the book of Matthew. But, you know, the word all is a, is a funny word. It can mean everything or the whole or all people without exception. Or it can mean all of some types. And, and that's, you can go research that yourself. You can look that up yourself. Don't take my word for it. Um, but it does. It, it can, you know, sometimes you'll be all meaning everything without exception. But most of the time, a lot of the times in the Bible, it means, it means some of all types or some out of the whole a lot of times it means a great many out of the whole. And so when Paul here is talking about the grace of God that brings salvation, we don't have to really wonder about who are the men that he's talking about. And men, by the way, doesn't just mean the male gender. It means it's, it's mankind, right? Man and woman. There was a time you wouldn't have to even explain that. or That, that could be controversial in some, some places in, our, in, in the world today. But you can see that he begins this chapter by by, t by teaching them what the, the aged men and the aged women were to do and how they were to teach the young women and the young men. And, and he, Paul even instructs Titus as how he's to behave. And then he exhorts, he, he calls on Titus to exhort servants uh, who have their masters. So you see here you have all classes of people, servants and masters. You have ministers and, and, and lay people, if I can use that word, where you got Titus and the people in the pew, the other church members, and you've got the, the, the aged church members and the younger church members. And what he's saying is that there's a, almost like the revelation language where it says there's a people out of every nation and every kindred. There's a people out of. And we are that people that are out of every nation and every kindred and every tribe and every tongue to whom the grace of God has appeared, Right? Aren't you thankful that the grace of God has appeared to you? <laughs> and so, uh, so, so here he's not talking about all men without exception, but all kinds of people the grace of God has appeared unto. And, and, 
and how has the grace, or what is the manner in which the grace of God has appeared? I think, um, first of all, in, in, its, in, its, in its height, the grace of God appeared when his son entered into the world, right? I mean, is there any greater manifestation of God's love and grace for his people than sending his son into the world to pay the sin debt for his people? Can y'all think of anything that, that shows the grace of God more than that? The grace of God has appeared through the Son of God coming to earth. In, um, in the book of John, chapter 1, it says the next day, you see John the Baptist is there, they're baptizing, and it says the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John and I'm sure this was a busy scene. There was a lot going on. But that word behold means that John tried to get their attention and he pointed them to one. And it was Jesus, the Son of God, who came to them that day. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is prepared before me, for he was before me. <laughs> and John bears record of him. He goes on to say, Behold, once again, the Lamb of God, in verse 36, looking unto Jesus. This is again the next day. He says, Looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. If you ever want to know, was Jesus gracious, or was, was God gracious to his people? You have to look no further than the fact that he sent his son to die for those people. <laughs> the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And so the grace of God appeared unto, unto men. When, when Jesus came into the world. But you know, the grace of God has appeared unto us individually through the new birth, right? The effectual call, uh, regeneration. We, 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 uh, we talk about from John 3, just a few chapters over, where Nicodemus comes to, uh, comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus says, you must be born again to even see or experience the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the new birth. And when you were born again through the direct... Uh, work and sovereign work of, of God alone through the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, you know the, the new birth is interesting. It's attributed to God the Father, God the Son, but mostly to the Holy Spirit. It's a triune work in your own heart. Isn't that amazing? And, and, and just the, the, the chapter over in chapter 3 and verse 5, we, we kind of quoted that earlier. Paul says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. What, what is he talking about there being when he, when he saved us? This is salvation, obviously. But he's, he's referring to a vital salvation where we come from a, from a state of death or that state of natural uh, man where we are in an atom unto a state of life in Christ. That is the salvation of the deliverance that's under consideration there. And he says he did that by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. I'm going to tell you, if you're here today under the sound of the gospel, if you've been singing the songs and they've, they've been ringing true to your heart, if you came with a, with a hunger and a desire to hear the word of God, then, then you have been washed. You have been regenerated. Your heart has been renewed. And you have the Holy Ghost. You know? And you've, you've been saved. And, and if that's your case, that means God has appeared to you individually. You know, when we think about the atonement. We think about God atoning for the sins uh, through Christ on the cross for all of his elect. And I like to think about that. But 
I also like to think about salvation. You know, that's a legal salvation. That's where the, the wrath of God was legally satisfied on the cross through the sacrifice of Christ. But that was, that was for the whole, right? That was for the, the, the all that are out of every kindred and every tribe and every nation, a number that no man can number. That's a, it's a great many. But, you know, you think about that, it was for all of them. And you were just a part of that. But when, when God came to you individually, speaking to your heart, he wasn't, he, at that time, he wasn't operating at the, with the all. He was coming to you, to you individually. You know, sometimes, sometimes we get in our head, we understand that God is the Savior of the world. God is the Savior of the, of the whole. God is the Savior of the elect. But we don't focus on the fact that God is the Savior of me. He's concerned about me. He, he's watching over you when you sleep. He's concerned about you when you, when you wake. He's, he's watching you, and he's, and, and not in, not in, I'm not talking about in a judgmental way. <laughs> now, I mean, obviously he sees everything you do, right? That should be scary. But he's, he's protecting you as you drive. He's protecting you as you, uh, as you work. He's, he's watching how you interact with other people because he's concerned about you. And the grace of God has appeared to, to all kinds of men vitally through the new birth. And then I believe that the grace of God has appeared unto us once you've been born again of the Spirit of God. The grace of God appears unto you through the, the preaching of the gospel and in the church, right? The pillar and ground of the truth. We are the institution. Think about that. As the church, we are the institution which has been given the task to, to, to take the gospel to the world. We are the ones that have been given the responsibility, especially as ministers and, and as the church, to uphold the truth. To, to be, we've been given, listen, we've been given the privilege to live in such a way and, and to, to, to live our lives in such a way and, and to, to press into his kingdom, to propagate his gospel so that the grace of God would appear to those who he's already worked on. You know, when the Lord, I don't know about this, but when the, world, when the Lord worked on me, I know I had, this, I had this feeling of guilt, right? Something had changed in me. Anybody ever experienced that? And, 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 and I needed something to relieve me from that guilt. <laughs> and that's what the world needs. I believe there's, there's probably millions of people in this world who have been touched by the, by, the, by, the, by the grace of God in their heart. They've been born again. They've been regenerated. But yet they're looking for something that will soothe that guilt, that will cover that guilt. And there's only one message that will cover that guilt, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that, does that, does that ring true to you? Does that sober you in such a way to think, what we're doing here, we're not playing around, really. <laughs> I play around a lot, <laughs> maybe too much. <laughs> um, some of y'all were obviously there yesterday. We were preaching, and I was nervous on the way down there. I'm nervous today. Me and Bo had to talk about that, being nervous earlier this morning. I said, Bo, I'm nervous a lot. <laughs> Sometimes I'll get my, 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 uh, my water here, and y'all see me shaking. I'm nervous. I love y'all, <laughs> and I think you love me, but it's a serious thing to speak from the Word of God. Yesterday we were on our way to Gordo, and, and um, 
I was nervous and the kids were being fine. You know, I'm not a perfect dad by any stretch of the imagination, but they were, kids make noises. Can any parents agree to that? You know, they just make noises. And I finally said, can y'all stop? You are stressing me out. <laughs> they weren't arguing, they weren't fussing. But, and a lot of times I love to hear those noises. You know, I love to hear my kids playing together <laughs> and, and, and loving each other. But at that moment, I was thinking about scripture and I was thinking about the meeting that was coming up and and I said could y'all just stop and and I don't remember who it was but some somebody made the comment kind of like well what what do you have to be stressed about <laughs> and I started listing all the things I have to be stressed about <laughs> should have been listing my blessings right it should have been and um I said, you know, I've got to work, and I'm a pastor, and now I've got to preach today. And, and then I started listing crazy stuff, like, you know, I've got to exercise, I've got to hunt. All these things, like if you had, if you really didn't have that much time, you wouldn't be doing them, right? I said, I just took three golf lessons, guys. <laughs> I play around a lot. I really should be more, if, if I think about that, that I have been tasked with the message that frees people from the bondage, the mental bondage of knowing that there is a God that they're accountable to and they have fallen short of the glory of that God and I have the message that will free them. I shouldn't play around as much as I do. Now, I don't believe God has called us into bondage by saying, you know, just on the opposite, on the opposite end of that, it would be extreme bondage if I thought the message I have would free them eternally from that bondage. Then if I played golf... Let's say I, I went to my golf lesson. Well, that's an hour I could have been saving souls. Now, that's really bondage, isn't it? So I believe God's, I truly believe God has, he's told us to seek the kingdom of God first, but he never, he never expected us to seek the kingdom of God only, right? We're going to work. We're going to have hobbies. By the way, I might as well tell all of you that. I, I told them last week, um, you know, I don't know much about golf, but I was hitting with my seven iron. This guy's got me hitting with my seven iron, and, and I'd gotten pretty good at hitting it straight. And he made the comment. He said, he said, you may have to give up preaching because you can't be a professional golfer on Sunday and preach. <laughs> and I felt really good. And then he said, let's get the driver out. And it wasn't five minutes later. I was hitting them so bad. And, and I golf left-handed. And five minutes after he made that great comment and built me up, as serious as he could be, he said, I got a question for you. Are you sure you're left-handed? <laughs> and I thought, man, that is, that is the story of life, isn't it? One day you're real high, one day you're real low. Um, life's like that. And I'm going to tell you, when the, in the highs and the lows, the thing that, the thing that keeps me centered is when I look into that grace of God, right? When it appears unto me. When I'm at my low points, I need the gospel of grace to appear unto me. And I tell you, when I'm at my high points, it's usually because I've been around the preaching or the people who, who love the message of the gospel of grace. So whether I'm at my high point or my low point, I need the message of the grace of God. And so verse 2, he says teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
Notice we talked about this would be salvation past, present, and future. Verse 12 deals with this present world, this salvation present. Salvation has appeared to us. Now here's how we should live in this present world. And, and the question that I would ask about this is what, what good is salvation now, right? What good is your salvation now? Um, and the answer to that is it's good for salvation. <laughs> your salvation now is good for deliverance now. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of times we focus on eternal salvation. You know, how we're, how we're getting and in Christianity. You'll hear questions like, like the, probably the number one question is, are, are you saved, right? They're talking about getting to heaven, being eternally saved. And a lot of times we spend a lot of time in the church here talking about how we were saved or, or, or the eternal aspects of salvation. Um, we, you know, the question is, how do you know that you're saved? Or what does it mean to be saved? We spend a lot of time in Christianity talking about eternal salvation. And that's good because it brings honor to God. And that is the number one question in life, right? Uh, am I actually delivered from my sins? But as we spend a lot of time thinking about that, we probably should spend a lot of time as Christians focusing on now salvation, present salvation. <laughs> because listen to what he says. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Where are you today? Today you're not in heaven, right? You ever heard the people say that? That brother's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. <laughs> I've heard people say that about people. I don't know if you could really get there. But if you're, just, if you're all the time thinking about heaven and eternal salvation, uh, that, that, that'll probably lead to a, temporal to a temporal deliverance in this life. But, but we need to focus on the here and now a lot of times, right? I need salvation here and now. Any of you been in that situation? You need salvation today. You need to be delivered uh, from this wicked, this untoward generation. And he says, here's how you can live in this present. Here's how you can live for salvation in this present world. Paul in Galatians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 4, defined this present world as this present evil world. He, he said that this world is, it's, it's here now and it's evil. That word evil means uh, dangerous or wicked. It also means that it's full of labors, annoyances, and hardships. Just annoyances alone. How many of you go through your day and things annoy you? <laughs> well, you say, why does that get on my nerves? Because it's an evil world in which you're living in. <laughs> Why, why does it seem like life is so full of labors? And why are there so many hardships? And why, why, am, I, why am I going through this or going through that? It's because we live in, a, in an evil world. It's present and it's, yes, the best way I know to define the world is it's here and it's bad. But you've got to live in it. I don't, I don't mean to, to make you think at all that there's not a lot of good still left in the world. If you're looking for it, you'll find it. But, but the reality is that the world in which we live is full of people who are out for themselves, right? They don't care how they treat you. Uh, we're, full, we're, there's, there's, we're, we're living in a world full of people that are out for power for themselves, and they don't care what happens to you. Uh, we're, living in, we're living in a world that's just marred by sin. We're living in a world that is groaning to be redeemed. <laughs> and when you see storms and you see natural disasters, that's just a... You know, that is, that, is, that is proof to you that we're living in a world that's tainted by sin. It's here and it's bad, and it destroys itself, much like we do, right? 
We're, Jesus called us evil. He called the disciples. If you being evil know how to do this, just like he called the world evil. And how many times does the world not take us down, but we destroy ourselves? And we're living in a world that destroys itself because it's here and it's evil and it's bad. And so there are things to do. There are things that we can do that the grace of God teaches us to do or instructs us to do on how we can live in this present evil world. And he says there's going to be things you have to deny. And to deny something is to reject it. They have nothing to do with it, right? But there are things that you're going to have to implement. He says we should live this way. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to deny things and we're going to have to implement things. What do we deny? He says ungodliness and worldly lusts. He says, if you're going to live presently in a state of deliverance, if you're going to, if you're going to live your life in a state of, of, of salvation, of victory, of, of peace, not that everything's going to go right with you. See, that's the thing about the Christian life is, you know, some, you could go to the extreme of prosperity preachers, and, and they're going to say, if you live godly, uh, everything's going to go right for you. You're going to be healthy. Your bank account's going to be full. Um, you could go to the other extreme to say if you live godly, your life's just going to be miserable and full of persecutions. <laughs> Both of those are extremes that are not true, right? It could be that. You could be wealthy. But not, living godly doesn't guarantee any of that. Now, it does guarantee that there will be some hardships. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, Paul told Timothy. Uh, but there's going to be some things you have to deny. And the first, he says, is ungodliness. You're going to have to reject ungodliness if you want any chance at living a, a, a peaceful life. And I guess to finish up the thought I had earlier is, is that although it's not that, that things will be awful with you or things will be great with you, the promise from Jesus really was more on this end of the spectrum, that in this world you shall have tribulation, right? That's what he told his disciples. Not that your life will just be full of them, but there's no doubt. I've heard it said you're either going into a storm, you're coming out of the storm, you're in the middle of a storm, right? That's just life. You, uh, you know, parents age and, and people get sick and people lose jobs and church fights. and You know, everything's not rosy all the time. And then on top of that, people, for the sake of just you following Jesus, are going to think about you differently and and it's just a life full of annoyances. But then he says, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. That's what he tells us. This is John chapter 16 and verse 33. And so he's saying you can live in such a way, a joyful, courageous way, that you can, you can live victoriously in the midst of a present evil world. But you're never going to do it if you don't reject some things. And the first thing he says there is ungodliness. And what is ungodliness? Ungodliness is a, is a want or a lack for reverence towards God. That's what it is. Ungodliness is when, when you live your life in such a way that you have no fear of God above. You're living for yourself. Um, I want to read you a quote from, from, from Elder Michael Goins from his book, uh, Rediscovering Reverence. He says this, The God of modern religion... And you can, let me ask you this, would you say we're living in a life, and some of us have fallen trapped into this, where we, we, we lack a reverence for God at times, a healthy reverence for God. You hear him referred to sometimes as, I hate to even say it, the man upstairs or this. 
We shouldn't refer to God like that, right? God is God. I'm going to tell you, when God comes on the scene in the Bible, people quake in fear. <laughs> um, so we should have a reverence for God. And so this is not to throw off on other people, other denominations, because we suffer from this as well. But listen to what he said. The God of modern religion is a bumper sticker deity that few take seriously. A flashing marquee with a clever turn of phrase to amuse passing motorists. Y'all ever see church signs when you're driving by church? Some of those are, some of them are funny. <laughs> some of them could be almost irreverent. I saw one, my brother-in-law's house the other day, it said, it said eternity, smoking or non-smoking. <laughs> I, I guess you decide. I don't know. Over on Grants Mill Road, some of y'all may remember this. Grants Mill Road, on your way to Irondale, there used to be a church. And I passed it last week, and I think they've taken down a sign. It was a very old sign. Been there for years. I'm probably 30s, 40s, 50s, I don't know. And it had the name of the church, and it said air conditioning. <laughs> air conditioning. <laughs> and I've always wondered, like, how many people pass that? And they're like, honey, that church has air conditioning. <laughs> and I guess at one time that may have been a draw, you know. <laughs> I saw one church, one time it had the name of their church, and it said, prayer conditioning. <laughs> I guess they were conditioned in prayer. But, you know, some of those can get a message across, but some of them can be irreverent, right? And it shows how we feel about God. So he says there's flashing marquees with clever turn of phrase to amuse passing motorists. In such a climate of irreverence, it is crucial that Christian people once again take God seriously. The rediscovery of reverence is the great need of the church in these days. If, if, we, if we woke up on Sunday mornings thinking, all these, a lot of these things are true. I come here personally to see my friends, right? I come here expecting to laugh. I come here expecting to have fun. You know, I come here expecting to be fed. All those, things are, all those things are good, but if, if, if I wake up in the morning expecting those on Sunday morning and only that, then I'm not getting what I should out of worship. I should, come, I should wake up on Sunday mornings thinking, I'm coming to have an experience with God, the one who is thrice holy, 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 holy. And, and if, we, if we came to church every Sunday morning with that, thought in mind don't you think we'd take it a little more serious we, we would probably we would take singing more serious we'd take our prayers more serious the fear of God is, is um, and you know people have a get a hang up with that statement the fear of God there is a certain fear to God if you can say that you could stand in the presence of God and not be fearful then I, I would wonder if your heart was even changed, right? <laughs> but, but it's not like this fear of a, of a God that's ready to strike you down. When the Bible speaks of the fear of God, it's a holy reverence for God. It's a healthy reverence for God. It would be unhealthy to say that you could stand in the presence of God and not be fearful. I want to read a few Proverbs to you real quick. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if you want to even begin to have knowledge, you have to have a healthy fear 
of the Lord. Now that should, that should change the way we live because if the fear of the Lord is not in the place we're going, then how could we gain any knowledge from it? Think about that. Proverbs 14 and 26 says, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. You could look at that and say, you can see there that the fear of the Lord is not something that diminishes your confidence in God or your relationship with him. Some people fear God to such an extent that they say there's no way I could be right with him. No, a proper fear of God brings you strong confidence in God and in your relationship with God. And his children shall have a place of refuge when they fear in him. Proverbs 14, 27 says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. <laughs> you want to really live? Then you need to have a proper reverence for God to depart from the snares of death. Proverbs 15, 16 says this, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasures and trouble therewith. <laughs> you know, it's amazing to me when I interact with some of our brethren in, I've interacted with our brethren in um, Africa, some in the Philippines, and, and just, you can just see that they're, the society in which they live is not as prosperous as us. But some of them seem to be a lot happier than the Lord than a lot of us. <laughs> And, and that, uh, the only thing I can equate that to is their fear of the Lord. And, and, and this is a Bible statement that it is better to just have a little but have the fear of the Lord and the peace that comes from that than great treasures and a lot of trouble therewith. <laughs> That's totally countercultural to, to what is taught in the world today, isn't it? Listen to Proverbs 22 and verse 4. It says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life the world would tell you the exact opposite of that 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 the, that the proud and those that have no reverence for God those are the ones that they promote and those are the ones that are on the the lifestyles of the rich and famous but the Bible says the humble that fear the Lord are the ones that actually have riches honor and life isn't that, isn't that interesting and so Paul here says if you're going to live righteously in this present world if you're going to be saved in this present world then you have to deny ungodliness. And then he says worldly lusts. And, and what, what is that? That worldly lust, that is a longing or desire to have things that are in the image or the character of this present world. That's a worldly lust, is longing to have something that this world promotes. I won't turn there, but you can read 1 Samuel chapter 8, I believe it is. Yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 8, read that tonight, and read where Samuel comes to the children of Israel, and you know what they say? They say, we want a king like the other nations. They've been ruled through judges, they've been, they're a theonomy, I guess you would say, they're, 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 their supreme power, or the one that they look to was ultimately God, and they say, I'm, I'm going I'm to read that for just a moment, they come they come to Samuel and they say, and it's 1 Samuel chapter 8. They say, we won't, we won't, listen to verse 5. They say to Samuel, behold, you are old, and your sons not, walk not in your, in your ways. And that was true. Then they say, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Make us a king to judge. They're saying, they're saying, we want to be like everybody else. 
That's one of the most dangerous places that a child of God can be is when they get, in the, they get in the mindset they want to be like everybody else. Because what they're promoting on social media or in the world today is not acting like the children of God. I can guarantee you that. It's not manifesting yourself as a child of God. But here, listen to what he says. Behold, they say to Samuel, we want to be just like all the other nations. And Samuel goes to, to God, and God says he'll do it. He's not pleased with it. And then in verse 10, listen, it says, And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, this is the, listen to what he's saying to the, to the children of Israel. He said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And, and I think part of that is, he's, he's saying, your king is going to take your sons and your daughters, and your king is going to risk, he's going to hazard their lives for him. <laughs> and you know, one of the, One of the worst things that happens is America, in America, and I don't want to get political, but I'm going to, I guess. One of the worst things that's happened over the last hundred years in America is when the rich send young, poor men and women to die to make themselves richer in war. And he says, that's what, that's what the king's going to do to your sons. And he says, and he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties. And he will set them to ear his corn and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tent of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to work. And he will take the tent of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. You get, the, you get the, the feeling here that Samuel is telling them he's going to be in all your business. <laughs> that's, another, that's, a, that's another characteristic of a government that has, that has gone beyond the bounds of what God intended for government to be when they're in all your business. How you live your life, how you raise your children, how you worship your God. And notice he's in all their money too. He's in all their possessions. Does that sound like a government you're familiar with? And then it says in verse 18, it says, And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. And you know, I think if I was, um, if I, I think if I was the children of Israel, I like to think that I would say, I would cry out and say, okay, that's not what we want. <laughs> But you know, the desire to be ruled by someone other 
then God is strong even within the people of God. And so the people, it says in verse 19, nevertheless the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. They said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what you say, Samuel, and I don't care how bad it will be. I want to be like everybody else. Probably sound like an old man, but you know, if you say, well, everybody else is doing it, that's not a good excuse to be doing it, right? And I hated when my dad would tell me that. <laughs> you know, the, Jesus said there's the broad way that many that go in there at. It leads to destruction. Brother Sam Bryant, our former pastor, my father in the ministry, his, his father would tell him, Sam, if you see a crowd, watch out. Something good may not be going on. That convicts me. But if you want salvation presently in this world, you're going to have to reject some things. And the first is going to be an attitude that is irreverent towards God. And the next thing, you're going to have to reject those worldly lusts. And you listen, you can't, you can't really even help it that they're going to come. This world's pumping you products every day, right? It's pumping you an agenda. It's pumping you a worldview. It's trying to conform you into its image. And, and, and the bad thing about it, there is a part of you that loves that and that longs for that. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, I die daily. If you're going to be saved in this present world, if you're going to experience salvation from this present evil world, you also have to wake up each and every day and say, you know what, I'm crucifying this world. I'm dying to this world and living for him. And boy, that's, that's a full-time job, isn't it? The Apostle John finishes 1 John chapter 5, the end of that epistle. He says, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's all he says. And you know, if you lived your life just trying to keep yourself from idolatry, that would be a full-time job in itself. Because I believe, as John Calvin said, that our hearts are idol factories. They are, they are constantly producing things that long for worldly lusts. And it's 11.50. <laughs> and I'm halfway there. <laughs> so, next week we'll pick up on what, not what you should reject, but what you need to implement and then we'll look at a future salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for people who are content with the way you've set up your kingdom. People that long and desire to come each and every week to hear the word of God proclaimed from men who are in vessels of clay and men who are dealing with sin themselves and men who fall short of your glory and men who have um, men who don't have it together and men who often struggle to even understand what the word is teaching but yet we pray that through your spirit we believe that through your spirit you condescend to us from time to time to, to use those men through your word to revive us and we pray that you would do that here today we thank you for the salvation that has appeared to all of us through 
sending your son, through sending your spirit, through sending your word and your gospel. And we also thank you, God, that you haven't left us in this present world to our own, but you've given us a way to escape. And I pray that we'd have the courage and we'd have the ability and we'd have the, the motivation to, to reject those things that keep us from living victoriously in this world. Pray that we'd have a proper, healthy fear of you. And I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that you would sanctify us through your spirit, through your word, through fellowship in such a way that the worldly lusts grow cold and dim to us and we, and we desire your word and we desire your people. We desire your presence more than we desire the things that the world would sell us. We thank you, God, that you've given us a way to press into your kingdom. We pray that you would grow your kingdom manifestly here in Birmingham, Alabama, here at Vestavia Church. We pray you'd send us people who would be content as we are with your ways and with your gospel and with your message. People that are longing to be fed with the message of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation by grace alone. We thank you for opening our eyes to that. We know that there are those today who are laboring, trying to work their way into favor with you. So we pray that you deliver us to them and that we may be able to speak words of comfort to them, that they could see that God alone won the victory and salvation is of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll sing a hymn at this time and give an opportunity. If there's anyone here today who would like to come forward and submit to water baptism and public discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can come forward and let that desire be known now. Brother Taylor, do you have a song we can sing?